Principal Matters Podcast, episode 307. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week we bring you inspiring innovative and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're talking about the stolen year with my special guest, Anya Kamenetz. Anya Kamenetz has covered education for many years, including for NPR, where she co-created the podcast Life Kit Parenting. She speaks and writes and thinks about learning in the future. And her newest book is the Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. She has been a senior staff writer for Fast Company Magazine, contributed to the New York Times, Washington Post, New York Magazine, and has won multiple awards for her reporting on education, technology, and innovation. She's the author of four other books, including Generation Debt, The IYU, The Test, and The Art of Screen Time. Kamenetz grew up in Baton Rouge, in New Orleans, Louisiana, in a family of writers and mystics and graduated from Yale University. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two daughters, and you can find her at her website at anyacominets.net. Anya Kamenetz, welcome to Principal Matters Podcast. I'm going to give a little intro to your book in just a moment, but before I do, um, I'd feel free to fill in the gaps of that intro and tell listeners anything else they may be surprised to know about you or your work. Uh, gosh, thanks so much. Well, it's really wonderful to be in communication with your um, audience. I guess um, I would only add that, you know, I attended public schools from uh, K through 12. And uh, also my parents are both college professors. I think they're probably, they're retired college professors. I'm sure that that influences my, um, my vision of education. Well, I had the privilege of hearing you present live at an event in Louisville, Kentucky, that the National Association of Secondary School Principals hosted this summer. And so thank you so much for taking the time to address leaders from all over the nation. And it was the first time that I had been exposed to your work in person, although I was excited to hear the work that you had done previously, because I'm sure I've heard your reporting and didn't realize it was you. Um, when I was listening into um, those stories on on NPR, but your, your newest book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go From Now, reveals how our public school systems um, were, and I'm going to quote your words, decimated by this pandemic and how years of short-sighted political decisions have failed to put our children first. You explain in this book how when schools closed, children went hungry. Mothers and caregivers were forced from the workforce. Children were physically unsafe and unhealthy, and many more suffered emotionally. And at the same time, our peer nations quickly prioritized schools and child care centers for reopening as soon as May 2020. But here in the U.S., they stayed shut for months longer, and social supports to families were spotty at best. So I want to begin there because you spent a lot of time over the last couple of years reporting on, researching on, and then putting together this this great book that summarizes a lot of the research that you found over the past few years. Why do you think that our schools, that our school students suffered so dramatically during the pandemic shutdowns compared to schools from other developed nations? Right. So I think it is really important to have that global perspective. And thanks for that introduction, by the way. Um, it really is important to have that global perspective and it requires taking a couple of big step, steps back. So 
you know, uh, we stood out in a bad way in terms of developed countries in how long we kept our schools closed and how disproportionate the impact was on uh, disadvantaged kids. Um, and so, you know, in, in two ways. So in at least half of our students stayed home from March, 2020, all the way through March, 2021. So three semesters of school. And that was disproportionately low-income students. It was disproportionately students in, um, in democratic-leaning areas and disproportionately students of color. And around the world, you know, our peer countries divided into two groups, roughly. There were the ones who took charge of the pandemic, limited suffering and death, and were able to reopen their schools because they simply didn't have the same contagion problems. So that would be your uh, New Zealand's, your Japan's. Um, and then there were the, the countries that were hit hard that did have wave after wave of COVID, but they, they opened up their schools and they kept their schools open even when they had to close other places. And that would be most of Western Europe. That would be Israel as well. So UK, in Italy, France, Germany, once they got through the spring of 2020, when schools closed all over the world, they said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to make sure kids get a chance to get an education. We're going to make sure that caregivers are um, you know, get get some relief, and we're going to keep schools open safely, even if we have to close our bars and our restaurants. Um, and so that's really where I pinpoint and say, you know, I don't think that school leaders are epidemiologists or are meant to be public health experts, uh, but uh, the the focus and the prioritization of children is really what I'm talking about here. And I would add, if you if you want to step back, what I what ended up kind of you know you pull a thread and it keeps coming out. And I knew as a education reporter. Something that's unique in a bad way, again, about the U.S. system is we don't have a social safety net for kids that other countries do, other wealthy countries do. And so without the social safety net for kids, schools are pretty much the only leg of the stool. And when you pull that leg away, that's when you really start to have problems. Wow. I love it that you pinpointed that so succinctly because you're right. And I think that for school leaders, a lot of them for decades, of course, the work I've done with leaders in, in my career, I've heard this over and over again, and educators in general, that they feel like schools have become the place for the the place that's supposed to be providing the remedies for children in every specter. And, and I know this is not news to you, Anya, but um, I'm just saying this for the yeah. sake of our Principal Matters listeners too. That so often I hear from leaders that I'm not sure what else we can do to provide the care that our kids need since we tend to now be responsible for their education, for their nutrition, for their mental well-being, and often for their physical safety. And you're right, in, in so many communities when schools have become that, that place of social safety net and you pull that leg out from under them, then we saw a nation that where those services crumbled for at least half of our students across the U.S. Let's stay there for just a moment because I'm really curious, and, and we're going to talk a little bit later about recommendations. Um, so I do want to come back to this maybe later in the conversation about better ways that we could create social safety nets for our children and our families other than just simply relying on schools. So let me, let me, let me park that question for later. But while we're on this topic, I, I do want to just ask you in what ways, because we're getting ready to launch a new school year, and right. I work with leaders across the U.S., many of whom were in schools that were closed, and many of whom were in schools that opened as quickly as they could, and a lot of it depended on exactly what you said, where they lived, their access to opportunities, how um, 
flexible their districts were because the larger the district, it seemed the the, le- the least the, the harder it was for them to flex. Yeah. Um, and some of that had to do with bureaucracy, and some of that had to do with where you lived geographically. But yeah. as as we're getting ready to step into this new era, something else you talk about in your book is how many school districts are still leaving behind students. So, what are some of the concerns you've had from this research about where, even though we're coming out of the 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 larger health concerns, although there's still ongoing health concerns, mm-hmm. in what ways do you see schools still leaving students behind? I mean. <sighs> School districts, I have an enormous amount of sympathy for the situation that they found themselves in over the last two and a half years. And I think that a lot of people that criticize the actions of schools just have no idea what the nuts and bolts are, you know, what it actually takes. And to me, it's like, you know, you started running from the zombies and then you got hit with a poison dart from some people in the jungle. And then you know, there was a uh, you know, food poisoning that went around and then we ran out of water. Like there was never, there's never been a moment when districts could really catch their breath in the last, what is it? Five semesters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're seeing now is, um, so what I hear is, you know, there most schools had to alter their operations out of normal operations in the last school year um, because of staff shortages, because of quarantine rules. Um, and they had to change their protocols more than once during the school year because of Omicron and because of Delta waves. Um, they had to deal with, um, so trying to remediate and catch the students up from where they were, including students who had been missing completely. So the students that did not arrive for kindergarten showed up in a different situation for first grade than they would have been. Um, also the students that were redshirted showed up in kindergarten a year later, um, chasing down high school students that were working and were drifted away from paid work, uh, away from school into paid work. So the job has just gotten more and more complex. And I wouldn't say that it's fair to say that there has been a recovery semester yet. Mm -hmm. Um, The last semester of this past school year was probably getting the closest. And I know, um, you know, there are some districts that return to more normal levels of operations earlier on, and maybe by the end, you know, in the, but almost everyone had had to change things up last winter. So yeah, it's just been a constant move. And I think that is cumulative because we're talking about human beings that are in these positions. So I hear all the time, people were burnt out, they left, then the new person hasn't been trained yet. There's training bottlenecks on substitutes. There's training bottlenecks on bus drivers. You're trying to hire new people, raise the wages um, and get new people in, but it takes time to actually train them. It's the same thing with the airlines, by the way, you know, the airline, why is this summer of travel so messed up? Well, people lost their jobs and they hired them back, but they're sitting in the academy. They're not certified to fly yet. So, you know, we don't have the staff that we need to get. So it's a kind of a supply chain issue, but the supply is human beings, right. That are taking care of our kids. Um, So yeah, that's a rant. I mean, I know that your listeners probably know when. No, but what I like about that is it's a perspective check and I'm actually pulling out some of the notes from the presentation that you made as well, because there were some startling things that you said there that I wanted to touch on here too, just for that perspective. You know, you mentioned the 190 countries that closed schools. You mentioned 200,000 U.S. children were bereaved or orphaned during this pandemic. There was the loss of mental health, basic needs and security, physical health. And and the word that you used that I thought was so helpful in this was understanding that we are still in a post-traumatic stage. And so sometimes I think it's easy for us, and I know this is 
maybe typically Western, or maybe it's just typically human, for us to want to just shift and move on and, and act like all of this is over or we're moving beyond this. But I think what what I the clarion call I hear from your work is that, hey, we need to recognize what's happened and and what what lack of structures were in place that exacerbated this for the experiences that we had through this pandemic and what can we do to recognize that in the short term, but also in the long term. And so let me give you an opportunity to respond to that, but I have some follow-up questions about some ways that we need to be responding in the short term and the long term. Sure. So yes, that's exactly right. The, the, the level of, I mean, I was talking about the stresses on the school system Mm -hmm. in the absence of other supports Um, But the levels of harm that have been done to our kids is something that's affecting the operations of schools every single day. And I hear it all the time. I hear about kids who are basically regressed and who are really in need of social and emotional coaching and help. And I I know that schools, and we heard um, where you and I were in Kentucky with the principals, this is top of mind for every single principal. And they're not letting politics get in the way. They understand that they need to have compassion and really good procedures in place in order to make sure that the people in their building are cared for and emotionally functioning. And that's the students and the staff. Um, So I I do see that as being a positive shift just to prioritize that. And it's hard to, it's hard though, saying that is not enough to fix it. You got to have the time and the resources to do it, but knowing that is, is really important, I think. Well, as a reporter, you've done a great job of shining a light on the things that you can see because you have the perspective of looking at, at schools across a spectrum where myself and the listeners that that are right now a part of this conversation, often the perspective that we have is limited to the schools that we serve. And so let's just stay here for just a moment because you talk about the need for a, quote, generation-long process of redressing harms done to children. And so I want to just I want to park there for a little bit too. Can you explain more about what you see systemically happening? Uh, Explain a little bit more about what you mean by this need for this generation long process of redressing harms and, and what recommendations do you have for educators? Sure. So um, by the easy peasy metric of test scores, we can expect a couple of years before students resume the trajectories they were on before the pandemic. And that's an average. And we're obviously, it's not an average because the impact of the pandemic was incredibly inequitable. I believe I highlighted in my presentation that the state of Tennessee is one that in their um, in their standardized test responses, they have resumed their pre-pandemic growth trajectory. So it's not totally out of reach, but it's also not to be expected to happen overnight. And particularly in those large urban districts where Um, very high levels of chronic absenteeism persisted through the first pandemic school year and even into the last, the second pandemic school year, which the second full one that just finished, they got a lot of ground to make up. Um, So what do you do when you have that? Well, you need all kinds of services. You need remediation, um, but not, I think it's been shown that, you know, we're we're out of the habit of leaving kids back. um, And that's whether individual or collective, we don't want to um, slow down their progress. They need a, um, a spiraling curriculum that allows them to add new information while also maintaining their focus on the basics. They need extended learning time to do that. And this is not, I mean, I'm not telling people anything they don't know. This is what research shows, right? High dose tutoring, summer school, after school. Um, 
but simultaneously, I mean, but it's a walk and chew gum thing because what the parents are most concerned with, and I think what a lot of educators, as we mentioned, are most concerned with is mental health. So how do you simultaneously make school feel as welcoming as it can, as fun as it can? I think what a lot of people mentioned to me is, you know, the, the fun has gone out of school, the opportunities to bond. And, you know, how do I get the, how do I get a kid to trust me enough to open up and be vulnerable about what, how they're struggling academically and what their motivation, if I haven't established that bond that I get when I do debate team or advisory or sports or whatever it is that gets the kids excited to come to school. And too many districts, I think it's, this heat isn't either or, and it shouldn't be that, you know, and, and the same thing is true with, I would say another dimension of that is parents with pandemic protocols weren't in the building. They don't have that. How do you get them back into being hands-on with their, with their students learning? And also with these activities that make school such a wonderful place to be. Well, I love it that you used both those words earlier, compassion and procedure, because you're hitting <laughs> on both of those, because you recognize that all of those areas that, you know, spiraling curriculum, high doses of tutoring, all those things that we know are good teaching methods, they have to be done with, the, they have to be companioned with welcoming, nurturing, loving environments where kids feel welcomed, encouraged, and parents do too. I have a friend um, yeah. who, Kyle Palmer, who just wrote a book called Parent Ships, and he was talking mm. about restructuring the relationships with parents like partnerships. And one of the things that he highlights in that work is the fact that we've for two years, shut parents out of our buildings. And so how in the world are they going to feel trusted as partners in that, in their child's education, if they don't even feel welcomed in the building. And so I know that's changing a lot right now. I'm seeing principals and education friends across the U S who are doing open houses again, welcoming people back and, or, or what maybe they're doing that virtually, but they're trying to figure out ways to, to, to reconnect parents and communities to the work that their schools are doing. But you you also talk about the disparities that culturally you have seen too. And, and Anya, I wanna lean a little bit here on your own research and your own perspective, because I think it's helpful for us. As you've done, as you wrote this book, you, you highlighted some other things too. And for Principal Banners listeners, just for complete disclosure, I have not had a chance to read your book yet, but I'm recommending it because I've, I've heard you present on it and have seen your summaries and I'm looking forward to reading it. But you talk about um, the toxic individualism, the lack of support from, from mothers. What shifts would you hope to see moving forward that could address, that we could address in either public policy or, or civic practice that might help us not go through something like this again, if we ever hit a time when we suddenly are facing this kind of insurmountable shift in, in public health? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, um, the policy changes that need to happen are on the federal level, but there's also a lot of state that state and localities can do. And, um, you know, thinking about it on the civic level, because it's not so daunting, there's a, there's, so there's there's money in the ESSER and the federal package to expand community schools. And community schools is just a fancy way of saying that your, your school district has strong relationships, right, with nonprofits and other state agencies that can wrap around the services that kids need. And a huge strength of the last two years is that schools everywhere learned way more about what their kids needed. Um, they had those conversations. Mm-hmm. And whether it was distributing laptops or groceries, Um, They were involved very heavily in meeting those needs. 
And so, um, you know, it would be wonderful to see schools build on that and kind of bridge the civic to the political by talking about what transparency we have and what we'd like to have into what students in our community need. And then, um, you know, kind of a buttress out from just the school itself to what is happening in terms of feeding families, what is happening in terms of childcare. Um, you know, schools sometimes are inv involved in helping extend childcare themselves with after school programs, but also um, cities are also expanding their third, you know, their, their three-year-old and four-year-old classes. That's something that happened in Portland before the pandemic. Um, I'm also reminded when you talk about sort of what might happen next. So I did a story in the spring where I uh, visited a school in New Jersey, very wealth, wealthy affluent area of New Jersey that was heavily damaged by Hurricane Ida flooding. And so they lost their school building. They were getting ready to go back to school for the first full time in person, full year after two, you know, one and a half pandemic years, and they had to close it up. Um, but, you know, and so there's some very frustrating things about that, about the state uh, budgeting and the red tape. And the positive part of it is the way that they formed relationships with community groups. So they actually ended up opening up their school inside of a church um, that had built its own whole education complex. So the school is using the building during the week and the church is using, using it for Sunday school. And so that's really an example of a community pulling together. And there was a huge amount of civic action because parents went door to door to get a bond issue passed in order to pay for the school reconstruction. So they were activated by what happened to their school. Well, that's really encouraging. And I know there are lots of stories across the U.S. of communities that pulled together, rallied together in order to, to, to see that happen. Um, I, I don't want to say these things be, to be discouraging, but I do want to, um, I, just, I just want to ask you to take a moment, Anya, and, and paint a picture for listeners, because you spent a lot of time researching, writing. You're also a mother, so you know the, the value of education in your own family. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes those of us that work with kids, we sometimes we see the stories that they that they show us. Um, but then there's stories sometimes that you've seen that we don't get to see because they're the stories of the kids who aren't back in school or weren't back in school. And so help us understand a, a portrait of those other students, those ones that got left behind, the ones that maybe some of them have never returned to school and what that landscape looks like for for those kids that um, that that for the last two years have not been plugged into healthy, strong learning communities, and and um, that that might help us have perspective as we start a new school year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think a lot about um, a family that I met in St. Louis, um, and it's a mom who has been homeless, and she's had um, eight children. Um, during her life. Uh, the last one was about a year old when the pandemic started. And so she didn't, she had an essential job. You know, most of our workers had to keep going to work. This is just a little less than half of workers who were in the so-called laptop class and could stay home. So there are a lot of unsupervised kids in the early days of lockdown and her family was affected by that. So she she had, you know, teenage children that, that had to go out to work and she herself was going out to work. Sometimes she would lock the door on her children to go to work. And one day her seven-year-old got out and went to an abandoned building in, in his neighborhood and went into, broke a window, came inside and was shot mm. in the leg by a man that was inside the building. Um, and thank God he recovered, um, seven-year-old. 
boy. And we, the thing is, we don't know a lot of what happened to kids when they were not supervised because we rely on many different eyes in the community, doctors, teachers, social workers to keep kids safe. And when kids were out of sight of those adults, um, they didn't come to the notice of, of people. And so that's, that's what we really are haunted by because it's a void in the data. We don't know. Um, and, uh, even after, you know, this happened to her family, the social workers in the city came to visit her and they had really no help for her. You know, all they did could really threaten her to take her kids away, but they couldn't give her money for childcare or any other program that would help her. Um, so that's kind of the, the problem that I see, um, that happened that we just didn't take care for or pay attention to. Well, and let's stay there for a moment because I want to ask you this before we wrap up the show together. And I do want to remind Principal Matters listeners that we're talking to Anya Kamenetz, who is the author of the new book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. You can find that book. I'm sure that it's 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 out and released, Anya. And so they could probably go to Amazon if they want to find it or to your publishing company as well. But let's, uh, as, as we wrap up, I want to talk about the 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 lack of priority for early childhood and preschool in the U.S. compared to developed nations, because this is something you touch on as well, that I think would surprise listeners to just recognize. I mean, most of my listeners will recognize the per pupil funding that's available for their K-12 students, but I don't know if I was aware of the disparities in our in our early childhood and preschool programs compared to the developed nations. So talk about that for a minute and how that played into the difficulties that parents had during the pandemic as well. Sure. So we're the only rich country that doesn't have paid family leave. And um, when we look at the average across rich countries, they spend about $14,000 a year on care for children who are preschool age. We spend about $500, a little bit less. Um, and so there are, you know, very few slots in subsidized daycares, vouchers, Head Start, only a fraction of the people who are eligible actually get a chance to take advantage of that. So we just don't have, it's impossible. You can't even call it a system. You know, what we have for childcare is uh, independent people trying to make a living at poverty wages, oftentimes opening up their homes, taking in kids with no, no funding for training or for safety procedures or anything else that they need. Um, and that's what parents have to deal with if they're not independently wealthy or they don't have extended family to help them. Well, Principal Matters listeners, I just want to encourage you as you are stepping into this school year, some of you are wrapping up your summer, some of you are just beginning back to school soon. But if you, I would encourage you to grab a copy of this book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives, and consider not only reading it yourself, but also sharing some of these ideas with your staff, with your teachers, with your communities, with your parents, with your policymakers, um, because all of us who are um, advocates for public education and advocates for um, systems that support our communities, whether that's uh, supporting our uh, youngest children or supporting parents, all of these things are so important, and and Anya Kamenetz does such a great job of shining a light on these issues that came, I think, to 
a stronger, a, a starker perspective during the pandemic. And Anya, if listeners want to stay connected with you, first of all, thank you for the time that you've that you've taken to research and write about this. And I know that you um, lived a lot of these stories by talking to people and, and researching stories. I know that you were a because I talked to you at the presentation you did. I know you did a lot of at-home education too for your own children. So you you not only experienced this as a reporter, but as a parent educating your your children. But how can listeners stay connected with you? And if they want to find out more about your work, where can they do that? And how can they get a hold of a copy of your book? Sure. So th- thank you so much. I really appreciate the chance, Will, to be in conversation with your listeners and with you. And thanks for your um, interest. Um, you can find me. Um, I have a tiny letter, a monthly newsletter, which you can find by looking up tiny letter and my name, Anya Kamenetz. You can also find me on Twitter where I uh, share a lot of updates. And the Solanier is um, is for sale everywhere. I'm going on uh, tour across the country. I'm also doing a lot of virtual events. If you'd like me to come to your school community, I'm available for that. I'm available for book group discussions. Um, and I also do uh, keynotes and I give workshops um, with with school leaders as well. So um, anything like that, you can you can get in touch with me on my website, which is just my first and last name, anyakamenetz.net. Well, Anya Kamenetz, thank you so much for the time that you've taken today to share with school leaders and Principal Matters listeners. Thanks for doing what matters. And we'll talk to you again next week. You can find free resources like this one at my website at williamdparker.com.